This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. I'm John McElroy. Usually we focus on what's going on in the U.S. auto industry. Today, let's go to China. And I've got a great insider there to give us the inside dope of what's going on in China. Tu Li is with Sino Auto Insights. He's actually somebody that was uh, born in Vietnam, moved to Michigan. His family was sponsored to come here, went to Michigan State University, now based in uh, Beijing. Tu, great to have you on the show. John, thanks for having me. Uh, love our talks, and, and, and thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, just so the audience knows, Tu and I often share our insights as to what's going on in our respective regions. But uh, Tu, let's get right into it. Uh, you know, there's so much talk here of what's going on with the chip shortage. I'm just wondering if there's the same level of anxiety in China, in the Chinese auto industry. I think uh, for the chip shortage, the companies here are very cautious. But I think the proximity to, to Taiwan and Korea and Japan helps a little bit. And then also, uh, if we're looking at volumes, the EV companies here are still uh, producing in much smaller volumes when compared to a, a GM or Volkswagen or a Ford. And so I think it affects them a little bit less. Um, the other thing that I would mention is that these EV companies, they're EV first, whereas you know, the traditional legacies are ICE first. And so chasing down chips is something new for them. And many of them, you know, I was reading an article on Reuters where Mary said, we're going to Mary change- Mary Barra, the CEO men- of General Motors. Yeah, 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 that's right. Sorry. Mary Barra said, we're going to change, GM's going to change how we manage supply chains. And I would, I would think that was would have happened three, four, five years ago because, you know, they do build cars here too. And so a little bit disappointing to hear that that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, if you're allowing a supplier tier one to manage supply on your behalf and you have and the tier one has multiple OEMs as customers, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. And so if GM is not calling them on a daily basis, wondering where their parts are or where they've been shipped to other than a GM assembly plant then you know Bosch and Aptiv are going to be shipping it to the people that or the, the companies and the plants that are complaining the most. And so I think it behooves them to really make battery cells and chips, those two commodities, very strategic and, and take them out of the regular commodity management and sourcing uh, sourcing process. Yeah. So what you're saying is the traditional OEMs like General Motors have been relying on their suppliers to buy chips, to put in components that they then ship to GM rather than GM or any other traditional automaker supplying its own chips or buying it themselves. That's right. Mm-hmm. Hey, another and, thing. And, sorry, go what? ahead. Finish that thought. No. So, you know, my first job was in the material office at, uh, at the Orient assembly plant, ironically, where you know, you had mentioned earlier and you corrected me uh, that the bolt is not being made. And so it was a assembly plant that was building five cars. And so material planning was a huge part of what we were doing. And so it, it's a little bit weird to think that um, uh, a just-in-time shop 
couldn't adjust to how important these parts are. Uh, and so again, uh, just just trying to, to to emphasize how different things are when it comes to software-based uh, digital products and services versus this mechanical, mostly mechanical stuff, right? Yeah. Hey, one of the things I've heard is that the Chinese battery makers have no shortage of chips whatsoever. That CATL can get all the chips that it wants. Uh, you, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not hearing anything on my end from any of the up the, up the upstream suppliers about chip shortages. Where you hear that, where you hear about it mostly is from the OEMs. And I think some of it is a smokescreen because they might see some weakness or some softness in demand. Because as you know, in China, the EV sector is quite mature relative to the rest of the regions. And so there's normally two or three products that are pretty competitive within each segment. Within the under 40,000 US dollar segment, it gets brutal because Volkswagen has just um, launched their ID series vehicles here and, and priced them aggressively. They're building them locally, but they're going up against Tesla. And then Xpeng, uh, the Chinese EV maker, one of the Chinese EV makers that's being traded uh, on the U.S. markets, they just launched a vehicle, the P5. It's a sedan. It's a family sedan. And it's starting at around $20,000, but the higher end version tops out at around thirty five dollars and includes two LiDAR. The Chinese consumer is also much younger than the American European consumer, and they embrace digital, right? So yeah. the two priorities is safety and connectivity, right? Yeah. And so their their life is all about their cell phone and being social media. And then the 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 LIDAR is all about the safety. It implies safety, right? And so I think that's where the markets are a lot different uh, relative to China, Europe, and the United States. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I don't think there's any uh, car sold in the U.S. right now with a LiDAR unit on it. And and to make your point, you know, uh, about the difference of Chinese consumers being so much younger, car buyers, uh, in the U.S., the average age of a Cadillac buyer is about 60 years old. In China, it's 32 years old. So yes. Huge difference. Uh, and then the other the other distinction is that even though they're 32 years old, that means they're pretty wealthy and they're probably not driving the car themselves. So the long version of their vehicles that was that's now available in the United States and Europe was actually started and popularized in China because most of the wealthy folks don't drive their own cars. Just a little aside there. Yeah. So. Let's talk EVs. I mean, uh, every time I turn around, it looks like things are going gangbusters for electric cars in China. My question is, are these early adopters or are EVs really starting to catch on with the general public? So the the crazy thing is that last year, the EU actually outbought China for electric vehicles. And a, a brief history lesson, the Chinese government started 12, 12 years ago on subsidies, on uh, subsidies for R&D, for sales and for production. And it's been nurtured throughout. And so they're actually starting to pull away from some of the subsidies, whereas the EU is really, really leaning into it. And then on top of that, I think the Germany election 
just this week or, or this weekend, I think there's a green group that's part of the coalition now, and they're wanting to pull in um, the limitation and elimination of petrol vehicle and diesel vehicle cars by 2030, when originally they were thinking 2035. And so, uh, again, the, the difference between um, a China market and, and the EU and the U.S. is the number of EVs, because the subsidies were needed when there weren't many things to choose from, right? And the infrastructure wasn't there. But now, you know, Tesla has come in and they launched their plant, Shanghai Giga, in January of 2020. They sold 137,000 cars, Model 3s mostly. And coming into 21, when they started ramping the Model Y, they're already at 160,000 units uh, that they've sold in 2021 already, just, just since August or just since January to August. So they've already outsold last year. And they're actually exporting a good portion of their manufacturing to Europe because, you know, uh, Giga Berlin has is, is been delayed a bit. And so we'll see whether or not Tesla is still strong growth in China, but they're getting into a lot of competition and their tried and true defense play for weakness in demand is to cut pricing because Tesla Giga uh, or, or sorry, uh, Giga Shanghai and, uh, only uses LFP batteries for, for their vehicles, which allows them to undercut the price of a lot of their competitors. But again, with a $35,000 vehicle, that's actually pretty nice if you look at it. I think, uh, and one thing I'll, I'll, I'll also say as an aside, the, the, the thought that Chinese vehicles aren't made of good quality, aren't reliable, that needs to be erased from people's minds because they're as competitive. And, and you know, I worked at Ford, I worked at GM, so I've, I've been to assembly plants, I've driven enough American cars to know that the fit and finish is, 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 is globally competitive, okay? And I would go a step further and say, for EVs in China, the software is probably less buggy than it is in the United States and Europe. And so, um, you know, the fact that that these handful, BYD, Xpeng, um, NEO, they've all shipped cars to the EU, that should tell you that they have enough commonness to believe that their cars are going to be competitive, right? And one thing I will say about VW in China is that they sold, I think, three and a half million cars in 2019 in China alone. They're struggling with the ID series vehicles they have three of them uh three they have the id3 id4 id6 id3 is the golf id4 is uh like a sedan and then the id6 is like a small crossover but they're struggling because the connectivity is not there because the safety is not there and most chinese customers aren't used to vw building evs and so we forget sometimes that tesla is a 17 or 18 year old company right so they've had time to marinate, build trust, excitement. And so, you know, the legacies are going to have those challenges as well. Yeah. Um, most people in China live in apartments. So the question is, where do you plug in at night? And China is offering generous subsidies to do battery swapping. So instead of charging yeah. your battery overnight, and if you live in an apartment, you know, where the heck do you plug in? Instead, swap out your batteries. In a couple of minutes, you go to a station and do that. How, what's your thoughts about that? Do you think this is going to catch on? 
You know, I think for for China, at least, we always have to remember, I think it's hard um, for people to to kind of get their heads around the scale, okay? So there are, I'll give you an example. There are over 64 cities in China with over a million people. I mean, there are flyover cities in China with four or five million people, okay? In, in In India, I think there's, 30 something or 40 and in EU, I think there's 15 in the United States I think there's 12. Okay. So the, 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 the scale and, and the ability for one city to have 22 million people that helps, you know, with the swapping, right. Cause there's a critical mass of demand because the Neo who is primarily responsible for putting, um, for kind of re- reigniting the swapping, they're a very popular premium vehicle. Okay, and they've kind of marketed it as a customer service or a customer engagement uh, feature from for their vehicle or for their service. And so, but we're starting to see just today, I think, or yesterday, Geely had announced that by 2025 they're going to have 5,000 uh, charging st- or swapping stations globally, and you know, primarily those are going to be in China, but. You, you know, it, it could be in Israel, they could be in the EU. And so I think in, it remains to be seen whether those things can export well, because there's going to need to be cooperation of the public sector and the private sector. And they're gonna, there's going to need to be demand for their cars in order for that to work, right? And at the end of the day, the batteries need to sit on somebody's balance sheet. Right. And so is it going to be the OEMs? Is it going to be the battery suppliers like a CATL? You know, how is that going to work? You know, here it's subsidized a bit. And so, um, you know, it's worked out well. And, you know, I saw, you know, I was in a NEO and it took about three minutes to, to swap out the battery, which is like so. So I think there's a psychological um, uh, uh, psychological uh, crutch that we need to get over when it comes to range anxiety, right? Because three, 400, 500 kilometers, about 300 miles, 250 miles, nobody drives that typically during a, a day, right? But anything that we can do to educate or alleviate some of that concern is going to help people get into the EVs, right? And so I think the United States, Pete Buttigieg, Secretary Pete, needs to kind of examine what's going on here to really sell in order to learn how to sell to the United States consumer or American's consumer, right? Yeah. Uh, Two, you had mentioned uh, that Chinese consumers are so much more, car, car buyers are so much more interested in connectivity in their cars, probably because they're so much younger. You know, one of the things I love to point out is that in the United States, the average age of somebody who buys a Cadillac is about 60 years old. In China, it's only 32 years old. So, Talk to me a little bit about uh, the Chinese consumer and especially their interest in connectivity and technology. So the Chinese consumer, as you'd mentioned, right, for BMW ownership, Mercedes ownership, they're at least 20 years younger than the average consumer that buys those brands in Europe or the United States. And so most of those people we call them digital natives. So they were born after 1990. They've always had a mobile phone. They've always been um, kind of connected to social media. And so they want their vehicle. Cause, so, so 
and you know this, John, there's two things generally in a person's life that are emotional buys, right? A home and a car. And so cars are no different here for a Chinese consumer. They want it to reflect their sensibility. They want it to reflect who they are. And part of that is the connectivity. And so the other part that is top two or top three when a, a Chinese consumer goes car shopping is safety. And so this goes back to Xpeng and the P5 uh, putting LiDAR standard in their higher end version of the, of the P5 because it implies safety. And so these are the kind of things that are getting pushed, the, the, the high technology features, the connectivity. And um, what we'll see is that that'll probably move over to Europe and the United States slowly but surely. And one of, one of our um, uh, uh, tenets for the company is that, you know, innovation is now moving east to west. Okay. I think, you know, GM and Ford and Volkswagen, they're not being 100% honest with, with the folks in their, in their home regions, you know, because to be quite frank, China is their most important market, right, generally speaking, because it's their largest market. It's the market where they make the most money. So I'll give you, for instance, Volkswagen makes 50% of the profits in China. You know, it's the largest Porsche market, it's the largest Audi market. And so, you know, what they do here is going to start trickling into what they launch in Europe and the United States. And so I think that's where you'll see more connected vehicles slowly but surely, right? Uh, you know, barring any chip shortages, of course. That's right. That's so. right. Say China has recently changed the rules on joint ventures, you know, uh, Prior to now, pretty much any foreign car company that wanted to operate in China had to find a Chinese joint venture partner. And right. I, I don't believe they could even have majority ownership in it. Um, they had to have maybe 50-50 or typically it was more 49% yep. for the foreign automaker, 51% for the Chinese partner. Those rules are changing. And now Volkswagen, which has uh, had... Joint ventures joint with ventures, uh, SAIC, Shanghai Automotive Industry Corporation, and FAW, the first automotive works, is now talking to JAC. And it, it seems to be leaving its other partners a little bit nervous. Uh, um, I'm wondering what you think is going to happen with this, because uh, if I was a foreign automaker, uh, I would be very interested in doing something different, because right now I got to... Uh, split my profits in China 50-50 or 49-51 with my Chinese partner. Uh, but if I can go it alone or or have, say, 75% majority ownership, I keep more of the profits. And, you know, we should point out that Tesla fully owns its operations in China. It, I, I believe it was the first one. It's the first, yeah. A partner. What, what's your thinking of where this is all going to go? So, you know, the so uh, Volkswagen and SAIC have uh, a really successful joint venture, and GM happens to also be SAIC's joint venture partner. And it took Volkswagen being here for effectively the beginning of the automotive, the, the modern automotive sector, for them to be the number one automaker in China. Uh, and so FAW, you know, they also, it, it's a bit confusing because, FAW and SAIC both sell Volkswagens, and they're very similar. Some of the some of the vehicles that they bought launch uh, separately are are very similar, and so um, 
I'm a bit, I'm not sure yet, you know, because I think it it depends on who the manufacturer is. You know, I I, I would take it on a case-by-case basis because Tesla, obviously they're very successful here, right? But, um, you know, they going it alone creates risk because if they get too successful for too long of a period, maybe that's not good for the domestic sector, right? But if you're, you know, a dance partner with an SOE, maybe that shields you a bit, you know? And so it's, it's interesting because Volkswagen recently announced that they're increasing their investment in the JAC joint venture to about 75%. And so to your point, I think what you're alluding to was that FAW and SAIC seemed a little bit jealous because now is Volkswagen going to give first dibs to products that they're developing in Germany to JAC or is SAIC and FAW going to also have a say because, you know, ultimately they both want competitive products as well. And so, you know, in Volkswagen's case, they added another dance partner, whether it's, you know, whether they control it or not, it complicates things, not linearly, but exponentially. Uh, and so, you know, with with the other guys, it remains to be seen. I think they've done really well in China with joint venture partners. GM has done really well. You know, I think Ford coming super late and then, you know, the Stellantis guys, Renault, those guys have struggled a bit. But you know, generally, if you look at uh, Volkswagen and GM, they've done really well throughout the years having these joint venture partners. And remember that these these the, the the local domestic players they have a better idea of what's going on at the ground level. You know, from a sales standpoint, from a customer standpoint, and so to kind of uh, abandon that seems a bit risky, right? And so um, to me. I'm not sure what Volkswagen's trying to do with that JAC move. They obviously want more control, right? But maybe they didn't anticipate SAIC and FAW getting so upset about it or, or quite frankly, getting jealous. Yeah. <laughs> so Very interesting. Hey, last topic. We're down to the last couple of minutes here. There's a lot of talk in the United States that uh, our supply chain for batteries and electric motors the raw materials, the processing of those materials is way too dependent on China. A lot of very open talk about trying to get off the Chinese supply chain. What's the reaction there? What's the thinking there? So China's actually trying to do that too, right? But they're doing it with different commodities, right? Chips, uh, software, um, uh, in you know, like workers, right? Because they want their PhDs to come study here and and create innovative products and services here, right? And so I think I don't I don't think this is a China versus U.S. thing. I think it's that every country wants to rely on themselves. But the the, the to be quite frank, it's a years 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 away kind of thing because um, and, and they're in the same boat together, right? Because if they try to do it too early, then costs will go up substantially from, from a battery manufacturing standpoint. And then it hurts China because there's less demand, right? But, um, you know, I think there's opportunities to still cooperate. Uh, and, and there's no getting away from the fact that China 
is still the manufacturer to the world. You know, I think we had talked about this before, um, you know, we got, got on air or started recording that um, currently United States by 2030 will have the current capacity for battery cell manufacturing that China has today. And by 2030, China will have five times the capacity for battery cell manufacturing as it does today. And so, and we're t- I mean, we're talking orders of magnitude different. And so if it was 20%, 30%, 40% different, then maybe the cost could be absorbed and we could separate and just kind of um, diverge from a, a dual path standpoint across commodities. But, you know, if there's, there's reliance on both sides and that's not going to go away for any time, anytime soon. So... Yeah, no, that that that's a great point. I mean, uh, it it was very interesting to me to read an article recently of China complaining that it's too dependent on imports for microprocessors. You know, it, it's the same issue there as here. Everybody's starting to to realize that the the globalized supply chain was very efficient, but it was it's also very fragile. And whether yeah. it's a, a tsunami or a flood or COVID or a, a ship stuck in the Suez Canal, you know, it, things can choke up mighty fast with a global supply chain. I, I think we're going to see a, a natural transition to more regionalized chains. Yeah. And, and the the thing now and, and the chip shortage, I think, is, is a little bit less important is the power um, shortage here in China. Uh, they're they're rationing power uh, because they've limited the amount of coal that can be fired, and so there's power shortages in parts of China, and so they're rationing it, which is um, uh, forcing suppliers for Apple and, and Tesla to shut down plants for days days for a couple of days and, a week, and, and so and, and two, this th- could be really an issue too. Okay, we're going to have to do another show and talk about that because we're out of time. (laughs) But, Julie, thanks so much for your insights as to what's going on in China. Very, very interesting. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Let's talk soon, okay? Okay, we'll do. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.